0: Well, it is nearly impossible to get into the United States Military Academy at West Point. First of all, you have to begin the application process your junior year of high school. About 14,000 students begin the process. But then you have to go and secure a nomination from a U.S. congressman, and only about 4,000 are able to obtain that. So 10,000 right there are eliminated. But then you have to have not only the GPA, but an SAT score or ACT score that would be good enough to get you into Harvard. And not only do you have to have this academic rigor, you also have to have this physical rigor. You have to have just off the charts, physical stamina, pass these incredible physical fitness tests. Basically, you have to be the the captain of the football team. That now brings it down to about 2,500. So 2,500 students who have passed all of these things And yet only 1,200 get accepted. Like I said, it's nearly impossible to get into West Point. So you would think that after going through a two-year process, going through all of that, like, man, you would just exceed. Like, you are set now for life. However, one out of every five recruits drops out of West Point. 20%! Why? Why? Because they lack grit. I'm reading a book right now by Angela Duckworth called Grit. And that story about West Point dropouts starts the entire book. Uh, In the book, she's arguing that grit, uh, which is just a synonym for perseverance, endurance, that that is the trait that really sets people apart, the people who really succeed versus those who kind of settle for less. And I'm not complete with the book yet. I'm I'm in the kind of the middle section, the heart of it. And in this middle section, she's kind of giving some of the ingredients for grit. Uh, the first ingredient is that you have to have an interest. Like, you have to at least have an interest in the subject matter or, or the, the, you know, sport or whatever it is. You know, for instance, like right now, March Madness is going on. If you have no interest in basketball, you will not develop grit, no matter how much you try to endure. Because you just can't make yourself work on learning how to dribble a ball, all right? So you got to have an interest. But then you have to move on to the second ingredient. You have to practice And practice, and practice, and practice. Like, most people, they don't enjoy all of that practice, but because they have such a high interest, they're able to keep going. Because they have such a desire to succeed, whether it be a subject matter that they're studying or something that they're engaged in, because their interest is so high, they just continue to practice and practice and practice, even when the practice itself isn't fun, because they believe the reward will be worth it. But something interesting happens during that practice time. Because if you think about it, the interest is kind of selfish. I mean, you're, you're interested in it because of, you know, you're just curious. There, there's something in you that wants to engage in this. And then that's why you practice. And a lot of that practice is selfish because you want to be really, really good at this. You want to be really, really smart. You want to know the subject in and out. And so that's why you do it. But during that practice, something happens. There becomes this shift in motivation And no longer does it become about the interest and the practice and what you get from it. It begins to become your purpose. It starts to become like a calling, it ends up becoming for others. Take the story of Jane Golden, for instance. Jane had an interest in art. And she lived in Philadelphia, and she started noticing all of these city walls that had graffiti all over them. So she obtained permission to cover them up. She didn't like seeing them. So she began to practice her art in covering up graffiti and doing these beautiful murals, hoping that these beautiful murals would also dissuade future graffiti. And it was such a hit, she got asked to do it again and again. And again, and pretty soon, it was so much, she couldn't do it by herself. So she started the Mural Arts Program of Philadelphia back in 1986. And since 86, now in, what is that, 20, uh, you know, almost 30, over 30 years, I guess. They have now painted over 3,000 murals, have employed over 300 artists, a hundred of whom are formerly convicted graffiti vandals. This is considered the largest art project in the world. But Jane, if you talk to her now, isn't it so much of just, oh, yeah, I like art because of how it makes me feel. I just want to do these murals because I like driving down the city and seeing these things. No, it has become her purpose. And they want to do this for the citizens and the visitors of the city. She had a shift in motivation. It no longer became about her. It began to become about others. I suspect that you are a bit like Jane. I, I know I am. Because you and I both have interests. We have these desires inside. Now, sometimes those desires are really simple and basic. Like, we desire food, good food, maybe too much food. You know, we, we desire to watch, you know, movies or a certain program or a certain sporting event. We, we, we like, you know, having a bed to sleep in. We, we like having, you know, a relationship where we feel loved and valued. You know, these kind of basic things. But then if we started interviewing you, I think we'd start finding that our interests broaden out beyond just those. That that some of you, it's not just that you like sports, it's that you like a particular sport, or you like a particular team. Or maybe it's that you like a certain craft, and you not only just like looking at it, you actually engage in it, you start doing it. Like if we interviewed you, we'd start going deeper and noticing— all of these interests and many of you engaged in that interest like you're getting really good at hunting you really know how to find the clearance sales you're really good at making websites like you you've taken your interest and you're practicing and doing it but oftentimes we don't make the shift we continue to engage in it because of how it makes us feel it kind of remains in that selfish stage but the problem is if often everything we desire in life just remains in the selfish stage it's not gonna bring us the fulfillment that we actually long for and want. A month or two ago, I was listening to a podcast where they were telling the story of a rap artist. I I apologize, I cannot remember the name of this rapper. But I remember in the story that he said that he was miserable in life. And he decided to set out to write a number one song and to become rich through rap. That was his interest and he began to practice it. So he was working hard. Well, a few years later he was calling into a radio station for an interview. He had a new song that just was released. It was part of an album that was about to come out, and he was going to be hitting a tour, and so he's kind of promoting his upcoming tour. So when he calls into the radio station, the DJ starts the interview off by saying, congratulations, I just heard like moments ago that your song, whatever the name of it was, it just hit number one on the Billboard rap charts. And the rapper began to cry. Now, the DJ thought that it was because, you know, his dream was fulfilled But in a later interview, the rapper admitted the reason he started crying was because his dream was fulfilled. He'd had a number one song. He was making a ton of money. And he was just as miserable when the whole thing began. Maybe you've had that happen to you. Maybe you thought, if I just achieve this, if I just get this, if I just can have that then I'll be happy. Like if I could just get married, if I could just have kids, if I just get that certain job, if I just you know buy that certain type of car, if I just achieve a certain level of fame, then I'll be happy, then I'll be fulfilled, then I'll be satisfied and everything will be great. But what you've discovered is that even after you attain it, it didn't do what you thought it would. The fastest path to unhappiness is selfishness. And if you don't allow these desires to have a shift in motivation, you are down a path where you are guaranteed to run into unhappiness, to a lack of joy, and you're going to feel lost. Today, as we get into Colossians chapter 3, we're going to see Paul basically say, you have to make this shift in motivation. Rather than me centering on yourself, you need to be centered on Christ. And when Jesus is your motivation— Now you begin to find the meaning and purpose that you wanted. But what you're going to discover is that when you find your meaning and purpose in Jesus, not only does it begin to give you the joy that you've started longing for, you start realizing, this is my purpose. This is why I was made. And that gives glory to God. And it also ends up being a blessing to others. So as we get ready to jump into the scriptures, let's pray one more time. So Heavenly Father, we are about to open up to your timeless word. And you wrote these words through Paul to a a certain group of people in the city of Colossae at a certain time in history. And yet I believe that the truths that you embedded there for those people have resonated through time to all of your people. And this room is filled with a bunch of people who proclaim who you are and you are the center of their lives. And so, Father, I pray that these words today would encourage them as they are challenged to step away from the things that they do in life that is just for self. And begin to live in a way that's motivated, motivated by Jesus and the gospel. And it ends up being, bringing glory to you, but it's a blessing to others. And it fulfills us in a way like nothing else can. And Lord, I pray for anyone here that does not know you yet. That even though a lot of this is going to be aimed at those who are followers of Jesus, I pray that they would hear something in this as well. And it would call them not to just make a shift to motivation so that they become famous like a Jane Golden or someone else that instead their shift of motivation would become to Jesus, that you're, you would open their eyes to the gospel and they would surrender their life to you. And so, Father, I pray that you would accomplish right now what you need to in these people, that you would go beyond my words, my, beyond my plans, and you would say what you need to to those uh, sons and daughters that are gathered together today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. so if you brought a Bible, open it up to Colossians chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, uh, I would invite you to do one of two things. Either right after our worship gathering, stop at our Give and Grow table. We've got two different translations of the Bible back there. We'd love to just give it to you. Like, that's our gift to you. We'd love to find one that you'll use every day and start reading and learning and growing spiritually. Or, if you have a phone, we encourage you to download a Bible to your phone. Uh, You'll see people right now pulling out their phones. Uh, You can be old-fashioned like me and use a paper Bible, or you could be like up to date and hip like my wife and use a digital Bible every day. Uh, We don't care. Just get into the word of God. Colossians chapter 3. Uh, the today's passage, um, I actually had to memorize when I was in college, verses 1 through 17. And the reason I was able to pull it off is Leanne and I had to make this long trip. It was our first year of marriage. We were seniors in college, and we had to make this long trip together. And so on the way back, we began working on this together. And even though she wasn't in the class with me, she memorized it alongside of me. Now, she might be able to still say a lot of this to you. The good news is she helped me get 100%. The bad news is I would fail that test right now. Uh, I no longer have it memorized, but I still love the passage, and I'm so glad I get to, to uh, go through it with you today. Um, so we're going to start right at the very top, uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now today, I'm teaching from the English Standard Version, which I normally do. And you notice there, the first word in the ESV is the word if. Sometimes when we see the word if, we think that means like an uncertainty. You know, right now with March Madness, some people are saying, if my team wins... Or, you know, some of you concerning jobs, you're saying, if I get this job, or if I get the promotion, or maybe if I get accepted to this college, or if I get into graduate school. Like, there's an uncertainty about it. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not talking about uncertainty. He's talking about identity. It would be as if I said to you, hey, if you're American and over the age of 18, you have a right to vote. Now, as I'm talking to you, maybe you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. I have no question in my mind that you're over 18. So it's not that I'm going, I don't know if you're over 18. No, like as I'm talking to you and I think, well, you were born in Iowa. You're over 18. Okay, it's a done deal. You're an American citizen. You have a right to vote. There's no uncertainty in it. That's what Paul's saying here. In fact, as I was kind of digging into the Greek this week, I I discovered the word if isn't really there. That's why some translations put the word since. Since you have been raised with Christ. If you were with us two weeks ago as we started the book of Colossians, we saw in verse 2, chapter 1, it said that this is being written to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters. Uh, So he's writing to those who already know the gospel. So he's not saying, well, I'm not quite sure if you guys understand that. No, he's saying, since you have been raised with Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, here's now what you need to do. And this isn't just for first century Christians. This is for all followers of Jesus. So if you claim to be a Jesus follower, this is what you are supposed to do. The second part of verse one, you are to seek the things that are above. And in verse two, he says to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Excuse me. We are physical people living in a physical world using our physical eyes. And so we are so often captured by the things that we see and experience. And so our minds dwell on the stress at work, what's going on in a relationship, you know, what's happening with the the neighbors. You know, our, our minds get so caught up in the here and now that we aren't setting our hearts and minds above. And and it's like Paul saying, guys, don't get so nearsighted that you miss what is ahead. Because this life, this is temporary. The things of this earth, they're going to try to distract you, get you into something else. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to continue with him, you have to set your heart and minds on him. So think about the things that are above. Think about where he's seated in heaven. Think about the gospel. Think about things that go beyond just this world. That's what he's saying. In other words... You have to have a shift in motivation. Don't just be motivated by the things of this earth. Be motivated by Jesus. And and to, to, well, first, before I say uh, how, he he shows us why we can do this. It's verse three. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you go into Ephesians chapter two, you see Paul describes someone who doesn't know Jesus as being spiritually dead. And so the idea is, this is what we're going to look next week uh, for uh, um, Easter, is that you were spiritually dead, but through Christ, just as Jesus was risen from the dead physically... You are raised from the dead spiritually. So if you are a follower of Jesus, the moment that you understood the gospel story and you decided to place your faith in this, you became spiritually alive, which means the old person that you were, this sinful person who was motivated by self, that person now is dead because this new person is come to life. In fact, Paul talks about this later in the the passage, all the way down in verse 9, halfway through verse 9, he says, you have put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This week I learned that when Jim Henson created Kermit the Frog, the first puppet was made out of his mom's old spring coat. She discarded it. She got rid of it. He saw it and thought, I could use that. So he starts snipping and cutting, takes a ping pong ball, cuts it in half, you know, use some Sharpie. And he created Kermit the Frog and just added a funny voice to it. It's kind of what God did with you. Sin was ready to discard you. You were worthless. And God pulls you out and redeems you. And like Jim puts his hand inside a Kermit, God put his spirit inside of you to give you life. The old is gone. The new has come. God has a new purpose for you. You aren't supposed to be living for yourself. You're supposed to be living for Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. So because you have died, you now have this new reason. There's this new motivation for living. So Paul helps us see how this is lived out. First, he's going to help us see that there's things we have to put off, the things that were part of the selfish nature so that we can then make room for the things that are of Christ to be motivated by Jesus. All right, so first, the things we have to put off. Let's start with the negative. Verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Paul is describing here what it looks like to be motivated by self. If it's all about yourself, these are the things that you will fall into. For, For instance, if you're desire, one of your overriding desires in life is sexual pleasure, then you will be not content to just wait and enjoy that with your spouse. You will go and engage in sexual immorality, whether that just be mentally sleeping with someone who's not your spouse or actually physically sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. Or the, the, the kind of the last one there in his list in verse five. Um, uh, yeah. He says covetousness. Some translations put greed. And then you notice he tacks on there a little phrase, which is idolatry. Idolatry is this idea of setting something else up as your God instead of the one true God. And so if you, in a sense, long for money, you're, you're in a sense, making money your God. And you, you will worship it by engaging in unethical practices to get it. You may actually begin to steal. You will do anything and everything you can to get the money that you think will make you happy. But what happens when you selfishly long for something and you don't? Get it. All you have to do is look at a little kid. Like, if any of you have toddlers, like they want to throw your phone in the toilet and you won't let them. And so they fall down on the ground crying and screaming as if you've just ruined their lives. They throw this little fit because you won't give them what they want. You and I may not fall to the ground and and kick and scream and and tears flow, but we we have the same response. We get angry. You you notice there in verse 8, he says, You'll have anger. There's wrath, malice, slander. Like someone's not letting you get something. You, you may say something bad about them. You, you, you know, obscene talk. You, you can't get what you want. You start cursing. You start using language that would make your mother blush. You're like this is, you can't get it. You want it and it's not coming to you. And these are the things that will come out of you. That's why Paul is saying you have to have this shift in motivation. If, you're, if your motivation is yourself, your own pleasure, this is the path you're headed down. This is what you're going to enjoy. And so we've got to put these things to death, he says in verse 5. So that by putting them off, we now can put on some things. And that is in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, kindness, I once was asked by a couple to make this the passage for their wedding. And it was actually kind of beautiful. It, it, was, it was like i got to describe the kind of clothes they were to put on. You know, to have this bride looking just gorgeous in her white dress and this groom all, you know, looking good in his tux. But then to say, here's what God is saying you really are to put on. Here's the type of suit you are to wear. It, it should be an undershirt of a compassionate heart. It should be a top hat of kindness. It should be cufflinks of humility. It should be, you know, over all of it, you put on love, he says. And then you put on this necktie of peace that covers your heart. You know, that's, that's the type of suit that I think a lot of people want to wear. A, a, a lot of people in this world, they, they want to experience love. They want to enjoy peace. They want to be known as kind. And yet, they can't put on this suit... Because they're already wearing anger and wrath and malice and slander. That's why Paul is saying, these things you have to put off so that these are the things that you can put on. But I want you to notice who it is that's allowed to put these things on. It's those who have an identity in Christ. Look right there in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved." If you understand the gospel, and you have made this gospel the center of your life, then you are God's chosen one. You are holy. You are beloved. God's reckless love came for you. And that should now be everything about you. And now, if you have that kind of identity, now out comes compassion. Out comes kindness. Out comes humility. It's this inward out. If you go and try and attempt to put these things on from the outside, you're engaging in religion. You're engaging in legalism. You're doing all these things, trying to somehow impress God. No, to be able to put this suit on, it has to come from inside. When your motivation is Jesus, now these things start to come out. And and notice, Paul talks about what you need to put in so that this can be what comes out. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. All right, so there it is. It's dwelling in you, teaching and admonishing. All right, so it's coming out. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, all right, so whatever's coming out in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Anyone here heard of the Bugatti brand of cars? Their most recent ones, the Chiron or, or Chiron. These are the world's most expensive cars, but they're also the world's fastest cars. This little baby here would cost you, eh, you know, easily easily three, four million dollars. However, if you got it, you would discover that the entire body is made out of carbon fiber so that it is light and strong. That right there makes the cost just astronomically high. But they were not done with the body. The engine is 1,500 horsepower, 8 liters, 16 cylinders, which allows it to go from 0 to 60 in 2.4 seconds. I happened to see a video yesterday between a Ferrari, that this new Ferrari car trying to challenge the Bugatti. The Bugatti blew it out of the water. It wasn't even close This one right here is now sets a new world record. It can achieve a speed of 261 miles an hour. Now, it actually can go faster than that. They actually have to put a limiter on it because they don't believe there are any tires in the world that can be made that can handle the speeds above that. And so they don't want you going faster so you don't blow out your tires. As soon as the tires can come up to grade, maybe they'll kick off the limiter, and who knows how fast this thing can go. But I want you to imagine... Someone just spent $3 million to buy that thing, but it has no engine. So they have this amazing piece of carbon fiber art, work of art in their garage, but it's worthless. They can't do squat with it. So many people want to look good on the outside, and yet what they need is a gospel-fueled engine. They need to be motivated by the gospel so that they can go That's what matters. And so what you need to do is to let this gospel, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Because if that becomes your identity, and now you're realizing you are God's chosen one, you are holy, you are beloved, you have been raised with Christ because of this identity, now you can live it out. And you can begin to apply the grit needed to live these things out. I had the honor, I guess I could say, of being interviewed for a podcast this last week. Now, I'll just be honest. I didn't think the interview went all that great. So I wouldn't be surprised if the two co-hosts re-listened to things and go, yeah, this one might not be our best episode. Let's just not release it, all right? So I, I might not be able to say, yeah, hey, listen to my, you know, I got to be on this podcast, all right? They joked that they have tens of listeners. Uh, but anyway, I got to be invited to be on this, And uh, it's supposed to be a podcast uh, that interviews everyday pastors to encourage everyday pastors. And so one of the questions they asked me was, tell us about a difficult time in ministry. So I went back and I told them the time that I opened up to you in February that in March of 2015, I went through a deep depression because I really thought Riverwood was done. I thought I had failed. And here we were coming up on Riverwood's first birthday, and I thought, it's over. We're finished. We're finished. And so I shared some of that story with them on the podcast. And so one of the the hosts, uh, he says, Aaron, what would you say then to the church planter that's in that sort of a situation? They find themselves in a really difficult spot, and they're thinking about closing the church. What advice would you have for them? And I basically responded by saying I'd ask them, where did the call come from? What, What was the motivation for starting this church? Because if the motivation for starting the church was because you thought you could do it better than everyone else, or because you really wanted to stand on a stage and get validated by everyone paying attention to you, or maybe because you, you thought this, your city, your, your community needed a certain type of church, like a certain brand, a certain denomination, a certain cool type. If that was your motivation, if that was your call, then you either need to repent or you need to just shut the doors down. However, if the call to plant the church, the motivation was that God clearly called you to start it, then no matter how hard it is, you have to keep going. Because sometimes you have to go through the hardest of winters so that you can appreciate the beauty of spring. If you find yourself at a really difficult time right now, do not run to the things of self. They're going to tempt you. You're going to want to go into it because they're going to promise you a lot, but they're not going to be able to follow through. It seems like pleasure is found there. It seems like relief is over there, but don't do it because all it's going to do is frustrate you, make you angry, fill you with wrath. You're going to slander others. You're going to start lying. You're going to struggle. Don't go the route of self-motivation. Allow the Holy Spirit to shift your motivation to Jesus. And when He is your motivation, when He is your desire, when He is why you do what you do, even in the face of the difficult things, you can keep going. You can apply grit. That's why I hope so much that your interest in Jesus isn't just that an interest. And I hope that your faith isn't just something that you kind of practice. I hope it becomes your purpose, your call so that you can go and be a blessing to others? Because I think that's where your greatest joy is going to be found, and God will receive the greatest glory in it. So will you let the Holy Spirit do his deep work in you to shift your motivation because you've been raised with Christ. You are no longer alive for self. You now are alive in Jesus. Your life is hidden in him. You are God's chosen one. You are holy. You are beloved. And so as God's chosen one, will you let his word, his gospel, dwell in you richly so that out of it will come kindness and compassion and humility and peace and love. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do this deep, deep work in your church family. I pray that these people right now but have a sense of your spirit with them saying, here's what I want you to do. God, to to leave the path of selfishness is difficult To, to allow you to totally shift it over is a lifelong process. But right now, father, I pray that you would let us help us give us the courage to lay down on your spiritual operating table and that you do what you need to in us. Because God, I believe that there are a lot of people out there that are hurting And they are on that path of selfishness. And they are believing the lie that their full joy, their full purpose, their their worth will be found in engaging in these things. But all they're finding is sexual immorality. They're finding covetousness. They're finding evil desire. And it's leaving them angry, full of wrath. They're slandering. They're lying. They're full of obscene talk. And they're miserable. So God, I ask that you would do this deep work in us so we can go be a blessing to them and invite them to find you and follow you. I believe that is going to bring the greatest glory to you and help us find our purpose. So God, I pray for the person here today that is struggling. And right now you're calling them to apply some gospel grit that they would trust you, they'd be on their knees before you, and as they're on their knees, then you would advance them. Father, would you give them that courage to open up to you, to be honest with you, and allow you to do what you want in them so you can then go and do what you want through them. Father, if there's anything I have said that is not in line with your word, would you just so graciously let each of us forget that? But the things that were straight from you, from your heart, would you let those penetrate our minds and our hearts and that this wouldn't just be a sermon that we heard, this would be something that we live so that you accomplish in us what you have set out to do and that is to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus so that we will go and be that blessing this world needs to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.